Digital transformation, meaningless buzzword or a potential buzzsaw to your current business model? I'm Thomas Law, the Executive Director of the Technology and Services Industry Association, and welcome to Tectonic, the podcast where we explore what makes technology business models successful in today's world. In this episode, we will be playing the keynote I delivered at TSIA Interact in May of 2022. And I have to tell you, it was a really wonderful event. It, it was just such a joy to see all these tech leaders getting together. Uh, I mean, you forget how much viscosity there is in face-to-face -face interaction. But in this keynote, I introduce our latest book, Digital Hesitation, Why B2B Companies Aren't Reaching Their Full Digital Potential. And obviously, I, I'm a little biased here, but I think this book is a must-read for any tech leader. And this episode will give you a good sense of why. Enjoy. Now raise your hand if you've actually published a book. Okay, I got one. Oh cool, two. Not so many. There's a reason for that. Because <laughs> when you write a book, it is like serving yourself this big old heaping bowl of anxiety and self-doubt. It's terrible. And I've had this experience seven times, and I want to explain the process of writing a business book. So it starts where you have this concept that you want to write about, and you're very excited about this concept. It's like, it's like you're dating somebody new. Every day you wake up, you're thinking about this concept. You want to spend time with this concept, and you start writing. And you're writing, and you're writing, and again, it's just all you think about. And after a couple weeks, you stop. You say, hey, let's do a word count. Oh. 1,800 words, 48,200 more to go. If you're not deterred, you keep going, you keep writing, writing, writing. Eventually, you have a draft, and you want to share it with somebody whose opinion you respect. So you call them, hey, I'm working on this book. You know, the team's working on this book. Could you look at this draft? Yeah, sure, send it. You send it over, and then you're waiting, waiting. You can't take it anymore. You call them, well, well, did you read it? Yeah, yeah, I, I read it. What'd you think? It was good. It was interesting. It's, it's nothing I didn't already know. Nothing you didn't already know. Why the hell am I writing this book? Why don't you write this book if you already know all this? But you're not deterred. You keep going, you keep going. Eventually, you get to go through editing. I'm 57 years old. Colonoscopy? Editing a business book, it's a coin toss, I gotta tell you, it's a coin toss. Suzanne Levanti, we love you, our main editor here at TSIA, but it's a coin toss. So, I mean, this is the, really a process you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. So, of course, JB and I invited several TSIA researchers to join us in this process this time. And I have to tell you, that was fun to watch. We kicked this thing off, I'm getting emails like, Thomas, I am so honored to be part of this project. Thomas, I always wanted to write a book. Six months later, after weekly content review sessions where you're hashing out content, you're writing, and you're rewriting, I start getting emails like, Thomas, I thought we were friends. <laughs> Thomas, I thought you liked me. So I want to right now recognize the TSI researchers 
that helped with this book. Can you please stand up? I believe we have these folks here, right here. Come on, stand up. Thank you so much for helping. Thank you. <clears throat> okay, not an easy job. Not an easy job. But there is a reason that we go through this process of writing a book. Because it serves as a crucible for us to forge our ideas, strengthen our ideas, sharpen our ideas about where the technology business models are going. Because we are on a mission here at TSIA. We want to help our member companies have successful technology business models that drive real business value for customers. That's what we think about all day. And this process of writing a book has served us pretty well. And to prove that point, I'm gonna do something that my mother told me to never do. Brag. I'm gonna brag, but in the words of Muhammad Ali, if you can back it up, it's not bragging. So in 2011, we published a book called Consumption Economics. And we said, where are these technology business models going? Well, they are gonna be more usage-based, consumption-based. And I just had a board uh, meeting for uh, our advisory board for born in the cloud companies. You know what they wanna talk about? <laughs> the impact of consumption-based, usage-based models on services, pricing, et cetera. So it's here, folks. We followed that up with B for B. And you know, this is a book, we looked at where the business models are going. We said they're not gonna be about selling products in a transactional way. Tech business models are gonna be about driving value realization, and they're gonna be in these more recurring business models. But we also said that's gonna force tech companies, a lot of tech companies, to go through a business model transformation. And it's gonna introduce something that we call the financial fish. And nobody likes the fish, I get it. I hear that all the time. And since we wrote this book, everybody's talking about the fish. McKinsey's talking about the fish. Bain is talking about the fish. Harvard Business Review is talking about the fish. I wanna remind everybody that it is TSIA that put the stinky fish on the table first, okay? And I'll, I'll tell you a little side story about B4B. Laura Fay and I just recorded a podcast with a product executive. Um, and we were talking about products that climb the value ladder, et cetera. And we get done, and, and Vanessa, who's our producer, you know, turned off, stopped recording, and we're just saying our goodbyes. And this gentleman says, hey, Thomas, before I go, I just want to tell you that, um, you know, thank you so much for publishing B4B. Because he said, it, you know, I knew that our industry was changing, but that book really framed it in for me, and I've operated differently ever since as an executive. So thank you so much. And, and that really touched me. And I, you know, I, I closed my eyes, and, and I thought, God, I wish we were still recording. <laughs> Missed opportunity. Laura can back me up on that story. Then, in 2016, we published the As a Service Playbook. And we said, again, where are these business models going? More revenue is going to As a Service, but it needs to be profitable. We can't live in a world where we're just spending all this money for, for growth. And so, 
we said there are new plays tech companies are gonna need to run, even the born in the cloud companies. And we introduced the concept of layer. So not just landing customers, but how do you cost effectively drive adoption, expansion, renewal? By the way, a quick aside on layer. I was talking to a member prospect a couple months ago. Sometimes I do this. Sales team will bring me in if, if the company does not know TSI very well. And I'll talk a little bit about our research. And I put this slide up on layer. And the prospect says, oh, I see TSIA has adopted the layer model. And I said, well, well, we created the layer model. And the prospect said, no, you didn't. No, that, that's a widely adopted industry framework. That's been out there forever. So I'm on this call and I'm thinking, what do I do with this flat earther? I mean, I don't what do I do? I sent him a copy of the book with the copyright and highlight. I just took a deep breath, I just let it go. So, but we put layer on the table. And that book and the concepts in that book are more salient than ever today. Because with rising interest rates, inflation, investors are nervous. They are nervous about companies that have high growth, but high cost structure. So let me ask this question. Have we earned your attention? Have we earned your attention? Thank you. So now you're curious what's in the next book now, right? You really want to know, based on the track record. So this book is called Digital Hesitation. And the catalyst was a very simple thought. Because we're watching companies you know, go through digital transformation. COVID was the great accelerator for that. And there's more telemetry flying around that we've never had before because we have customers that are in different digital postures now with us. We start asking ourselves, what's the impact going to be on the tech business models? And if we now have data we never had before, what can we do with that data? Or what can we stop doing? Things we don't have to do anymore because we now have this data. And the impact of this changing world has been unfolding for several years. I've talked about these examples before in this stage. But BASF has a offer I call fertilizer as a service. And the way that works is farmers get this device. They put soil in it. It sends information about the soil up to the cloud. BASF runs AI around that. They're looking at weather conditions, forecasts, the soil conditions. And they write a very specific prescription for the farmer on what fertilizer to, to use to maximize yield. Philips Healthcare has been on this stage talking about what we call monitoring as a service. They now have connected devices with their customers. They can help hospital staff be more productive because of that. In the world of construction, I don't know if you know this, but getting cement to show up at the right time is a big deal in terms of costs. And now there's a company that has cement as a service using telemetry to make sure that happens at the right time. And last but not least, in the book, we talk about Michelin, who can take the lowly old rubber tire, <laughs> put a sensor in it, get new telemetry, and now they can do fleet minute management. They can help trucking companies reduce fuel costs. So these are all great examples of unlocking customer value, business value. And by the way, those are things good for all of us. <laughs> Less fuel, more yields, more productive hospital workers. This is beautiful.
But what's the impact on the other side of our mission, which is our business models, making our business models successful? They say, hey, Thomas, for our, us to be successful, we have got to have a great competitive product. Um, yeah, I guess we need some marketing. But I also, I also need a lot of salespeople. I need a lot of salespeople knocking on doors. That's what it's going to take for us to be successful. That's the old game. <laughs> that is the old game. If you follow the concepts in this book, it is about unlocking new growth engines for your business model. Starting with product-led growth. That's a concept I'm sure you're hearing more about. But is leveraging the product itself to drive revenue. There's growth through the channel, which is different now. Companies are building platforms that their partners can build value on top of that unlocks a new type of channel-led growth, not the old reseller model. There is experience-led growth that comes through a digital customer experience. Yes, B2B, we can have a digital customer experience, and also being able to scale customer success. Other people, not just us, talk about customer-led growth. What is that? Following the telemetry on your customers to focus and prioritize where you spend your sales effort. And last but not least, if you really understand your customers, you can unlock outcome-led growth. I look at all your websites. You're all talking about delivering business value and outcomes, but there's a gap between your talk track <laughs> and your reality. We gotta close that gap. We gotta close that gap. We call this book Digital Hesitation. Hesitation. Why? Because the journey we're talking about is hard. And in the book, we set it up, we call it the innovator's dilemma squared. I think most people in tech are familiar with the innovator's dilemma, which Clayton Christensen wrote about. And what his observation was is when you're in tech, and you're making a product, you're making money on it, and the next generation of technology comes along, you really don't want to move. You know, if you're selling tape backup, and EMC comes along with these fancy arrays, you're like, well, I'm making a lot of money with these tapes. My customers are invested in these tapes. They like, I don't really want to go do that. That's a drag. That's the innovator's dilemma. But this move is the innovator's dilemma because it has, back to that financial fish, two moves on the chessboard. You have to lean into these new technology as a service offers, and you have to change your business model with that to being more recurring, more subscription. And this is the place everybody in this room has got to go, <laughs> whether you're born in the cloud or not, and you're trying to make the move over to as a service. What do you want? You want a business model that is high growth and profitable. That's where you want to go. Now, the good news is more and more companies are demonstrating you can do this. And I know everybody in this room is sick about the Adobe, sick about hearing about the Adobe case study, right? Raise your hand. I don't want to hear about Adobe anymore. Blah, blah, blah. They made this big transformation. Right? We're a little tired of that one. But the fact is, today, Adobe is more profitable than they were in the old model. Microsoft today is just as profitable on the back of as-a-service offers as they were when they were slinging CDs. In Palo Alto Networks, they used to sell on-premise hardware appliances. Now they have half of their revenue coming from subscription and SaaS. It can be done, but it is wicked hard. 
And to make that point, I just, I'm gonna use this Microsoft case study because it's all public data, but it just frames this in for you. So here's Microsoft's revenue starting back in 2016, and they started to break out for investors. Hey, we've got these new as-a-service revenue streams, right? 28% of revenue, and we're gonna grow them. And as you can see, they demonstrated to investors that they could grow them. Good news. Here's the not-so-good news. <laughs> when they started this, the new revenues were 34 points lower in gross margin than the legacy stuff. Now, how would you like to be Amy Hood, the CFO of Microsoft, standing up doing her quarterly analyst briefing and saying, hey, we're really excited about these new as-a-service revenues, and we, we're really going to grow them, and oh, by the way, they're lower than the old. Amy, what was that? Oh, they're just 34 points lower than, Amy, what was that? Go back to those transcripts of those sessions. I've, I've done that. Analysts are asking her, okay, how high is high on these margins for these new offers? And Amy said, we don't know. We're gonna work on it. As you can see, they did. But they're still lower. There's another move they made there. Look at the blue line. That's the legacy offers, the old stuff. What they do, they made it more profitable. How do you do that? You ring cost. You go up to the business unit that just had a record quarter in profits and you say, hey, great quarter, I'm cutting your budget. Wonder how that went over. But that's what they had to do. And then, below the line, they took out $6 billion in costs. Sales and marketing, G&A, ratchet, ratchet, to protect profitability. And as time has gone on, again, their margins, it is dilutive. They keep taking costs out below the line. There is a financial fish, folks. It's real. You have to make some big moves on the chessboard. But they did it, and investors have responded. So in the book, we lay out the capabilities that you have got to drive to get through this knothole to have a highly profitable, growing tech business model that is driving business value. What are those levers? Well, the first one, we have a chapter on products that climb the value ladder, unlocking product-led growth. We have a chapter on digitally-enabled partners on how to unlock channel-led growth. We have a chapter on both DCX and customer success at scale to drive experience-led growth. We have a chapter, yes, we have a chapter <laughs> on data-driven sales, and we update our, our layer framework, and I'll show that to you. And last but not least, we do have a chapter on outcome-aligned pricing. These are the new growth engines. And in the book, we lay out this game board throughout these chapters, and we say, well, you know, again, this is the journey you're on, rinse and repeat. I have new data. I've connected customers, new information I never had before. What am I gonna do with it? What new tools? so that I can change my workflows and ultimately change the way that my employees work, my partners work, and the value my customers get. Everybody wins here. That's the journey that we describe in this book. Now let me kind of give you a vision of the future, because this is what we do in these books. Where is the future gonna go? And we'll start with Layer. Again, we, we updated Layer, and we call it A Player. Analytics and placement are very important, and we spend a lot of time in the book talking about land, because we haven't covered that in the past, and it's becoming way important that that's more data-driven. And we're talking about using data so that when your salesperson comes in in the morning, they're not thinking, I wonder who I should talk to today. They are looking at telemetry, 
that says, this is who you should be talking to. This is who you should be talking to. It's the right time. Here, here's the buyers that you should be talking to. And based on that customer's environment and everything we know about the customer, this is the offer they need right now. That's the future of B2B. It's about creating this virtual loop where you are constantly working with customers, looking at that telemetry, using that to inform how you work with new prospects. It's a beautiful flywheel. Now, Steve Frost on our team has been chipping at this for a couple years with sales teams and leveraging data. He has good research here. But you can see from one of his studies, yeah, okay, we all have a CRM. Congratulations, <laughs> right? But a CRM does not make data-driven sales. So then he started asking questions, well, you know, what other information are you using to inform sales motions, right? It's a coin toss if we're using marketing analytics. It's a coin toss if we're using anything, any information out of sales. And it's a minority practice to use any external data. Like what's going on with your customer's financial situation or their competitors or whatever. So we've got a, a lot of headroom here in data-driven sales. The other thing we talk about in the book is the, the digital customer experience. And today, what we see is that we call it departmental DCX. So support teams, you stand up an awesome support portal. Hey, that's great. And then maybe the product team figured out how to do auto renewal on the product. Okay, that's great. But it's very stovepiped. In the book, we talk about a vision where you bring that together. There is a centralized team that is looking across the entire digital customer experience end to end, analyzing that, and then working with different departments to take down friction. Now I'm gonna pause here, because I know that there are some people in this audience right now, you're laughing at me. And it's, it's, I'm a big boy, I can take it, I can take it, but be honest, inside, right now, you're, you are chuckling. And what do you think, what are you saying to yourself? Thomas, you Pollyanna, data-driven sales, DCX end-to-end, -end. do you know the state of our systems? Do you know how this, none of this stuff works together and talks? This is what, this is your vision? I'm telling you, I don't think we are too far ahead of our skis on this. And I'll tell you why. I did a podcast episode with Emma from ServiceNow. And what is her role? Her team is this centralized customer experience analytics. And listen to this episode. Because she describes what they do is they have like 16 or 17 listening posts across the whole life cycle. Sales, marketing, product telemetry, customer sats surveys, information from finance and accounting. And they are looking for the biggest friction points in that customer journey, and they take that down. This is not science fiction. This is coming your way in B2B. And what is the end game for you? What should you be thinking about? The end game is less complexity. JB put this on the table in his keynote, in Vegas, these B2B companies, we are so hard to work with. I keep talking to executive teams and they say, well, Thomas, you know, our customers keep saying they want one throat to choke. That's why I have to have the sales executive has really got to be the main funnel for everything. It's, you know why they're saying that? Because you're a pain in the ass to work with. I'm sorry. That's why they need one throat to choke. Because they're like, I can't navigate all this complexity you're throwing my way. Just give me one person and I can yell at them. And they can go work your complexity. Not the winning model. 
Think about that next time you hear that from a customer. In the book we say, complexity kills. That has to be our new mantra in B2B. Complexity kills. And again, I just want to reiterate the road to failure here for growth and success is more features, more marketing, more salespeople masking our complexity. It's not the future. The end game is number one, again, less complexity for the customer. Number two, you're all gonna to have to take a big deep breath on this, less stovepiped behavior. You, stop protecting your support P&L. You, stop worrying about your PS P&L. Product folks, stop worrying about their product margin. How am I gonna recognize these units? What's my margin on that five-year managed services deal? There is no product margin on that five-year managed services deal. You own the asset, get over it. We believe, ultimately, there's only two P&Ls that are gonna matter. Number one, the P&L of the offer, the complete offer. All the products, all the services we need to unlock value for the customer. How much does that cost us? And how much do we charge? Is that profitable? And the second P&L is the specific customer. Do we have a profitable customer, yes or no? I ask companies all the time, I say, well, tell me, who's your most profitable customers? And they answer with their biggest customers. I said, well, but who's the most profitable? Well, we don't, we don't track that. I didn't do a poll on that, but I bet if I ask how many of you are tracking profitability at the customer level, you don't know. We gotta break those stovepipes down. We have to be way more data-driven through the whole life cycle and doubling down on the front end with sales. And how many of you have a customer reference program? Everybody? We all have our customer? Okay. Here's my observation of a customer reference program, B2B companies. It starts with marketing. And they say, we need more references. So they go out to the sales folks. I need references. And the sales folks are like, eh, I don't know if I want to, this is a great customer, right? They're a little protective. And then marketing begs, and maybe they do a spiff or something. Finally, sales go, oh, okay. Here's my customer. But nobody talks to this customer unless they go through me. I don't want you all harassing my great customer. And marketing says, yeah, that's right, that's right. Nobody talks to that customer unless they talk to me and them. You got it? Does that sound familiar? So it's like we build this exclusive nightclub. We put all our great references in there. And we have two bouncers outside, sales and marketing. And this little prospect walks up and excuse me, excuse me, can I get in that cool club and, and talk to some of your references? Who sent you? My, 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 my sales uh, rep, Johnny. Johnny? <laughs> Johnny. Johnny sells those little S&B guys. Johnny, get out of here. You can't get in there. Am I a little on the mark here? Just a little on the mark? Why can't we have Yelp ratings like a great restaurant or local plumber does? My daughter lives in LA and she says, Dad, I don't go to any new establishment, I haven't been before, don't care what their service is until I check out the Yelp ratings, right? What are people saying? So we have a vision for B, our B2B companies, our members here, that you have Yelp ratings like this. Shipping the value on time. You really know our business. Best technology solution I ever consumed. Wouldn't this be great 
if we could go and get those kind of ratings. We're not gonna get those until we wring out the complexity. So at this point in time, and as you get the book and you read the book, you're gonna start wondering, I wonder how far we are, our company is on this journey. And I'm gonna give you a way to assess that. And it's interesting, because I've been unfolding this content to executive teams over the past couple months, and when I start the conversation on digital transformation, digital hesitation, executive teams usually say, well, Thomas, you know, we have been working on digital transformation for several years. And I gotta tell you, you know, I, I kinda think we're almost kinda done with this, so I'm not really sure you know, there's a lot of value added in this conversation. And I say, oh, hey, that's cool, that's cool. So, that's, so tell me, what are you doing with product-led growth? Well, you know, we're not sure that's for us. Our products are very complex, that's really, okay, okay, no problem. Um, what are you doing with your partners, you know, to enable them with your new as-a-service offers? Well, actually, we don't know what the partners are gonna do with these new offers, and you know, we're just kind of mum on that right now, because we don't really wanna scare them, so we're just, we kind of put a pin in that for them. Okay, no problem. How about DCX and customer success at scale? Well, I mean, the DCX thing, again, is that really me? I'm a B2B company, and customer success at scale, yeah, you're right. I mean, we're, we are struggling to really fund that, to make that you know, go up and down the stack, all right. Let's go to data-driven sales. And then they get a little tear in their eye. What's the matter? You're making me laugh, man, data-driven sales? So I don't even bother going to this one. So by the time we get done with the session, we're a little more aligned on where the people really are on this journey, all right? We've got a lot of headroom here. I was looking at Cloud 40 data. We track 40 of the largest publicly traded cloud companies. And I noticed there were some companies that were spending more on sales and marketing than the industry average, and they were growing slower than the industry average. And that's not a good thing. And our assertion is if you are paying more for growth than your competitors, your peers, that's a competitive disadvantage in the long term. Now, most of you have heard the term CAC, customer acquisition cost, right? We're all familiar. I can also tell you through Steve Frost's research, hardly any of you track CAC. Hey, what's your CAC? Oh, I, I don't know, I think it's like, a, it's like a buck 10 for every dollar. Is it? You don't know, you really don't know. Just be honest. So I'm gonna give you a proxy. Revenue acquisition cost. Look at the percentage of revenue you're spending on sales and marketing and divide it by your, your growth percentage. And let me give you a simple example. Let's say you're a born in the cloud company in here, you're growing 40%, which is awesome. You're break even, but that makes you a rule of 40 company, so the investors probably love you. You're spending 40% on sales and marketing. That sounds like, wow, that's a lot. Well, your rack calculation would be one, 40% divided by 40%. Now, is that good, bad, ugly? We track this now every quarter and we publish it. All the companies in the Cloud 40, all the companies in the TNS 50, 50 of the largest tech companies we track every quarter, the average rack number last quarter was 2.36. So if you were one, like that, that's pretty good. But I'm here to tell you, there are some serious rack pace setters out there. There are companies that are generating revenue growth incredibly cost efficiently. And there are people in this room, companies in this room I know who have rack numbers that are eight, 12, 20, don't worry, I'm not gonna call you out. 
you can do the calculation. This is a problem. So you can use rack as a way to say, how efficiently are we growing revenue? Now, what's gonna make that rack number better? Get more revenue growth or reduce your costs? Gee, what's gonna do that? Oh, I don't know. The new growth levers. That's why these are so important. Now, I'm gonna bring this home to the conference right here, again, with our, our North Star. I was talking to a longtime TSI member last night and we said there are three types of executives that we now see in the industry. There are tech leaders, and I consider everyone in this room, you are tech leaders. There are tech leaders who are like, look, what I'm doing right now is fine. What I've been doing for the last 10, 20, 30 years, it's worked. I make money, the company makes money, I don't need to change. That's one group. There are tech leaders that in their gut, they know things have to change, they're nervous but they don't know what to do. And then there are tech leaders that have conviction and vision on where they need to take the company. I want everyone in this room to be in that last courty, that last group. Have vision. Pull your companies through this. Please, do not hesitate. Thank you. <laughs>